Well, good evening, everyone. Good to be here. It's great to be here, in fact, isn't it? And we're going to read God's Word together. And we're going to read in Exodus uh, chapter 20 there. Exodus chapter 20. So, read the whole chapter. It says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below. Or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbour's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick cloud where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build of it on, of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. 
And there is the reading of God's word to us tonight. The people have come out of Egypt. They have been delivered. And what we're going to try and think about tonight is how God, the Lord God, reveals how the delivered can prosper. You might remember, um, even if you haven't been with us in Exodus, I'm sure you will remember that when Moses was confronted by God in the burning bush, He was given that task, wasn't he, of going into Egypt as a mediator. And God gave this wonderful promise in in Exodus chapter 3. He says, I will certainly be with you. And Moses needed to hear that word, didn't he? And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And here they are, back at Mount Sinai. About three months have passed since they have uh, left Egypt and they had arrived at Mount Sinai and the rest of the book of Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus and the first nine chapters in the book of Numbers are all concerned with events at Mount Sinai. Very important, significant events in the history of Israel, a nation that had been delivered and a covenant was going to be made with them here. As a nation, Remember, it is as a nation, the Lord had delivered Israel. The ones who was called his firstborn son, the nation was called his firstborn son. Not because they were the biggest, not because they were the first nation, but the nation that had the rank in his eye, the apple of his eye. And the Lord reveals at Mount Sinai, I'm going to suggest tonight, how those who have been delivered out of Egypt can prosper. We're going to look at this just in four little sections and their end of the turning of PowerPoints. So that is the outline for tonight. We're going to think about remembering the deliverer, understanding the one who has delivered them, the very character of God, the fear of your deliverer and the approach to the deliverer. So may the Lord help us in that and may we understand the lessons that are for us in his word tonight. Remembering the deliverer. You know, prior to the giving of the law, which is the significant part of this passage tonight in Exodus chapter 20, we, we understand, don't we, that God is reminding them very succinctly in a concise form who he is and whom has taken them from the situation that they were in. Centuries beforehand, God had led Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, remember that, and given him great promises, you know, that he would have a son, wouldn't he? He would have land, uh, and through him there would be a great nation, which is an incredible promise when you think about it, because at the time he didn't even have a son, uh, let alone a family, let alone a nation. But here's the fruition of that. Here we see that as well. And not only would he have these things, numerous offspring, but also blessing from Abraham for the nations. Great promises. And of course that blessing is ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Bible tells us. And now Abraham's descendants have been led out of Egypt. They are now a nation quite of number. And the unfolding plan of redemption is there. 430 years these people had been in Egypt. 400 of those years had been in servitude and slavery. 
The people who had been led out had known nothing but slavery, cruel bondage and slavery all their lives, all their grandparents' lives, their great-grandparents, and their, well, go on a few greats before that as well. That is all they had ever known. And they were helpless in Egypt. What we learn as well, they also served false idols. They did serve false idols in Egypt, the Hebrew people. But they also cried to God. And God, in his grace, heard that cry and sent in one his man, Moses, who would go and ultimately deliver them out from that nation. And so God, I am, verse 2, the Lord your God. The covenant name of God, I am Yahweh, your God. I have made myself known to you. And it is through me and through me alone that you have been taken out of the land of Egypt. You know, the book of Deuteronomy reminds us of the grace of God in taking this people who were in bondage in Egypt and without hope and helpless couldn't do anything for themselves. And God, through his great power, had delivered them. The end of Deuteronomy 7, verse 8 says this, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house, from the hand of Pharaoh, king, and Egypt. A helpless, and if I might say, an unworthy people, an unworthy people had been delivered by the grace of God. That's what God is bringing before them. Remember, and I trust even tonight as we think, you know, the application for ourselves, as we look at this text of scripture, is that, isn't it, ourselves? That we truly should remember ourselves if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we were dead in trespasses and sins individually, each and every one of us. And if we have come to trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, it is by his grace and by his grace alone that he has called us. He has delivered us. He has empowered and enabled us. It is always good for us to remember that. So the first lesson that the people have is to remember the Lord your God who has brought you out of bondage. And the second thing we'll see tonight then is this, that they are to understand. And God gives them the law. The law we know as the Ten Commandments. It would be the nation's, if you like, their constitution for living as a theocracy under the direct rule of Yahweh the God there was to be no kings of course the people rejected that later on and God gave them you can have kings and that didn't work out too well did it but they were to be a nation under the direct rule of God and the ten commandments and the whole of the law coming as we will see was that constitution for that nation that they would be different I think it's very important for us, before we go into the depths of this tonight, to think a little bit about law. About law. Because all of us will know there are some laws given to us in the scripture that don't apply today. Okay? We don't have to, you don't have to circumcise your sons. Okay? On the eighth day. You don't have to do that. But some people did. So we have an unchanging God who works in different ways and at different times. And, and God administers his affairs with men in, in these different ways, in a particular area, we, we could use the word a dispensation in different economies. 
And so, and just to illustrate that in a small way, we've done that with circumcision already. Um, I don't know if uh, this is what I call the bacon roll illustration. Now, perhaps you don't like bacon rolls at all, so that's. Uh, but many of you will. Well, you think about this. Well, Noah before the flood uh, could not have one, could he? Couldn't have one. After the flood, Genesis 9:3 tells us that he could, because then there was meat to eat. Moses before the giving of the law, he could. But after the giving of the law, he could not. Leviticus 11.7. Peter, the apostle, well, as a young boy, he would never have tasted a bacon roll. After Acts chapter 10, he could, if he wanted to. So we understand, don't we, that God at different times has given laws to people that don't apply to us now. Okay, we understand that quite clearly. And so whilst we might not agree on all the exact details of this, it is essential to see that he has, does act in different ways with different people, different dispensations, we could use the word. So although all scripture is profitable for us, it's not all written directly to us. And I think we understand that. I think everyone understands that to some degree, don't they, in this room tonight. And so what we understand then, before we go any further, is that the law that we have in Exodus chapter 20 is a law given to a certain people at a certain time, the people of Israel. And many people nowadays, and I, I actually used to be this as well, so I've changed my mind in years gone by, believe that the Mosaic law could be divided into three parts, moral, ceremonial, and civil. The problem I see with that now um, is this, that the Bible doesn't, as I see it, make that distinction in itself, in itself, between those types of laws. What we find is the law is listed together, and all of it is binding upon Israel and considered to, if you violate one aspect of the law, one feature of the law, then you've violated it all. That's what the book of James says. And I think the scriptures present the Mosaic law in all its totality, not just in Exodus chapter 20, but going through all these laws that you'll see and what we have as a unit. It is the law as a unit given and it has been brought to its intended fulfilment brought to completion in Christ and he has brought in a new covenant so there's a covenant agreement here being made with Israel and Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so I think it's best to see the law undoubtedly as one complete unit given to a people and as we remember Christ is the end of the law for all those that believe now that, I find that's very helpful in more than one ways but particularly so then we don't go arbitrarily through our Old Testaments and try and pick out laws from the Old Testament that we find attractive and we're going to use that law uh, and the other ones we're not example there might be fathers or mothers or grandparents who will, who will tell their uh, child maybe older teenage child they can't have a tattoo and they're going to base that on a verse found in Deuteronomy you can't have that and they'll point to that verse there you go. All right. well okay then you're going to use that 
But they'll probably say, if they've got, they've been reading their Bibles as well, they'll probably say, well, the bit above says, Dad, Grandad, you can't shave the side of your head. Oh, I don't like that part. Well, OK, but why? Why, why one and why not the other? And when they're in the same chapter. And so we need to be really careful on what, if we're going to use verses out of the Old Testament randomly, it's sort of not like the old Woolworths pick and mix, you know, I like that one but not that one, so I'll choose that, how we're going to use them. I think it's quite clear the law was given as a unit to those people. Now, the question then comes, how do Christians today, how do you and I, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, relate to the law as a unit? How do we relate to the law as a unit? No Christian uh, will think that the law is now a way of salvation. Never was, never will be. So we understand that. The question is whether we are under its standards of the law as a present rule of life. Are we? Now I think the answer is no. We are under, not the Mosaic law, but under the scriptures, the New Testament says, the law of Christ. The law of Christ. The law does have a purpose. Yes, it does. And it will teach us about God's character. It taught the people, as we'll see, about their sin. It taught them of their need of a saviour. And it taught them that they needed some ability of that. Now, so, let me illustrate that. Now you can turn to these passages if you want. I know it can become a bit onerous. I'll turn to different passages. But in Romans 3.20, the law shows us our need of sin. Let me remind you what Romans 3.20 says. And if you like to turn, I think it is helpful to turn, but I can't make you turn. Um, Romans 3.20 says this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law of God, the law, brings us a knowledge of our sin, and God does that convicting work. But then if you like to turn, please, and I'm not going to explain all these, you can look to them for yourselves uh, when you go home or for the future, or make a note of them. The book of Galatians, the book of Galatians in chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul's reminding the believers that the law has fulfilled a purpose until Christ came. Until Christ came. So let me read Galatians 3, 24 to 26. So then, he says, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. So the law was once a guardian, okay? It's like the idea of being a parent, a drawn alongside type of parent, but it is no more because it has found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, if you keep in the book of Galatians and turn to chapter 5 and in verse 18, uh, you will see there. That Paul says to the Christians who are in this new covenant relationship, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, of course, he doesn't mean as a means of salvation. It never was that. But you're not under the law as a rule of life. You are being led by the Spirit of 
God. You are being led by the Spirit of God. Now, I've had to do lots of editing and throw lots of verses out, but have a look at 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 20 to 21 as well. And without reading it, you will see there that Paul distinguishes between those who are under the law, that's the Jews, okay, those who are under the law, the Jewish people, to those who are without the law, that's the Gentiles, because the law wasn't given to them, it was given to the, uh, to the Jewish people, and Christians, and no way he says, who are not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, under the law to Christ. There is what we call, or what the scripture calls, the law of Christ. And you might remember in Galatians 6, and a lot of my thinking on this has been honed since we studied the book of Galatians. And Paul says, you know, to love is to fulfill the law of Christ. Paul says that the believer is not under this law at all as a means of life, but is under the law of Christ. And of course, there is lots of overlap between what we see here, the law given to Israel, and the law of Christ. Because interestingly, nine of the ten commandments found in Exodus chapter 20 are repeated in the New Testament numerous times and in different ways. So we shouldn't be surprised that the things that we see here bring them before us the very character of God, the very character of God, are given to us also in the New Testament. Yes, there is an overlap, I submit to you, based on the scriptures I've presented, and there's more besides as well, that we as believers are under what is called the law of Christ. We are in a new covenant relationship. So, but let's move on to think about the very character of God, to understand your deliverer. And God says this, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. The phrase might mean in opposition to me. There is only one true God. You need to understand that. There are no, not many gods. There is one. And there should be no other object of worship. A command given to the people there. Well, they had worshipped false things in Egypt. You know, Joshua makes that clear in Joshua 24, verse 15, I think it is, doesn't it? You know, you, you the worship the God of your fathers when they were in Egypt. We often try and think of the Israelites of very, very faithful people when they were in Egypt. But that's not true. When we read our Bibles, that's not true. God delivered them truly by grace. He truly did. And so, have no other gods. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods. Number two, you shall not make any carved image. Well, if the first commandment to them reminds them of the object of their worship is to be God, then the second tells us how he is to be worshipped. Tells them, and it does tell us as well. You know, 1 John 5.21, keep yourself from idols. Don't try and make anything. He is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth for us, not by images what will appeal to the senses. And notice what he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We often think, don't we, in common terminology, as jealousy is a bad thing. Well, envy is certainly a bad thing. But our God is jealous, your God is jealous for your affections and yours alone, not to be given elsewhere. I am jealous for the affections of my wife. If her affections went elsewhere, I would be certainly upset and jealous, wouldn't I? 
remind ourselves this is a God who has brought these people. He has delivered them and he desires their affections. And that is what is in their best interest. You should only have me as your centre of love and affection. And thus the name I have revealed myself. Don't misuse that name. Don't apply it to anything that is not of myself. It is his identity. Yahweh has identified himself as a covenant-keeping God with them. And so he says to them, don't put my name onto something that does not represent me. I know the most common usage, and I do this when I speak to the children as I go in the primary school and teach them, you know, people saying, you know, oh my God. They use the word Jesus Christ. Well, that obviously is an application of that. That's using God's name in vain. Obviously it is things being said like that but it's much more than that it's putting his name onto something that is not of him behavior and conduct things like that don't take it in vain don't say that's of me when it's clearly not so god says you know my name is important don't attribute to anything like that i will not hold that person guiltless of that and then the fourth one of the very character of god there is a day set apart he gives them the sabbath day the day, of course, we would now know as Saturday. Now, it's interesting, you know, people often point out, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And you will hear people say, well, they must have kept it beforehand, because remember is emphasised. Well, there's no evidence in Scripture, if I'm reading my Bible correctly, and you can feel free to correct me and think of it yourself, that it was kept at any point by anyone before this point. Remember refers back to God creating. And there was a day that he rested from creating. Not from all work, because uh, things were being sustained. But he rested from creating. So remember that. It was a day that he set apart. And thus this is how you are to be to his people of Israel. You know, when we look at our Bibles as well, we see the Gentile nations often you know, given rebuke by the prophets for what they did. But there's nowhere, again, if you can correct me, and I'm open to correction, there's nowhere at all where the Gentile nations are commanded to observe the Sabbath or condemned for failing to do so. It was a commandment given to God's people of Israel at that time and for them, and also, yes, of course, for the sojourners who would come into them as well. And the Sabbath... Like the Old Testament sacrifices, prepared the way and pointed to Jesus Christ. He is the fulfilment of the Sabbath. We thought of that in recent times, many of us, when we went through Hebrews and got to chapter 4. The Sabbath pointed to him. He is the rest for God's people. And now we rest in him of that. Now, of course, there's many blessings for this day that we meet on, on the Lord's day. And I, I enjoy a day separate, which is different. I do enjoy that. And you probably do as well. Uh, but what I'd say to that, you know, we, we, let's not try and put on from Scripture things that are given to a certain people at a certain time for a day which isn't even today. It's not, you know, the Sabbath was the Sabbath, yes? And that was at the end of the week. This is the first day of a new week indeed. Indeed, it is a precious time. We have the great privilege, many of us, to not work on this day and a day where we can meet together and all those things. And that's fantastic privilege. 
But if you're really going to follow it, you're not going to... Well, you wouldn't need to turn your heating on today at home, okay? But uh, you weren't allowed to light a fire on the Sabbath. So uh, remember that in December if you think you're going to keep all the... Because sometimes what we do, again, we select the bits about the Sabbath we want to keep. You know, we say, well, we must do this and that, you know. Well, you can't just pick and choose. It's either all or nothing. It's all or nothing. And I'm suggesting... The Sabbath finds its fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we rest in him. I know someone's going to say, well, you've always told us you're not going to run a race on a Sunday. I will not. That's true. But the reason is not because I think it's in the Bible, Evu Dad, and that is because um, I, I hold to that we should meet together with the Lord's people on that day, and I'm not going to do something as trivial as run a running race when I should be with you here, okay? It's not to do with the Sabbath day restrictions. So that's how we relate to God, or they were to relate to God. And then we move on to see the very character of God in the next six commandments of how we are to relate to each other. And they very much emphasise the very character of God. The commandment num- number five, I think, you know, people say, well, this is a bridge. And yes, I can understand that is a bridge, but how we relate to God. Because God puts into this world systems of order. Systems, if we like, of government. So in the church, there's government, there's elders given, isn't there? In, 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 the, in the country, there's kings or whatever the government system might be. And in families, there is order given, and that is to a father and a mother. And so children, children are told that they must honour and respect, because there is order, God's order, in, as I said, in government, in family, and in the church. I'm not sure one should interfere in the other, but that's a different subject, which take a lot longer. But there is fathers and there is mothers given. And God has placed them. God has placed them and he's given them delegated authority. It's always delegated authority because he is the supreme authority. But there's delegated authority given to parents. There's delegated authority given to elders. There's delegated authority given to kings and governments. And they will be responsible to, to God to how they use that authority. They will be responsible to God to how they use it. And that's quite a thing, isn't it? But the instruction here is that um, children, dependent children particularly, should honour and respect their parents. That is to hold them in high regard. Hold them in high regard to those whom God has put over you. Now, of course, that instruction, what God says about order, doesn't disappear when we leave home or we turn 18. And I am, as long as my mum and dad are alive, is to honour them. Now, that looks different at 59 than it did do at 9. But we get the idea, don't we? But very much for children. What a different country we would live in, wouldn't we? What classrooms would be quite different if this was even thought about? to be followed in this this is God's order for his people then so God is a God of order but God number six is a life giver as well you shall not murder you know he gives life God gives life and we are not to take it illegitimately we should see all people from the young from those in the womb because that's life to those at the other end of the spectrum and all the way in between as God's image bearers and do as much as we can to protect and to preserve life. Do not murder because he is the life giver. Now of course, some of you 
if you've got your Bibles open, and you all have, you're in Exodus 20, but you'll look at Exodus 21.15, and you'll see there, and Exodus 21.16, and 21.17, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man steals a man and sells him anyone for vision shall be put to death. Whoever curses father or his mother shall be put to death. And so some opponents of the Bible say, well, this is a contradiction. Because we're had up here, God says, do not murder. And just oh, a couple of hundred words later, we have these sentences, you know, people to be put to death. And of course, there is an explanation for that, but time does draw on. But there's a difference between murder and kill, and there's a difference between what is legitimate and not. You shall not, the Amplified Version says this, you shall not commit murder in brackets, unjustified, deliberate homicide. Okay, now we can go a long way, we can look in the book of Romans even that God says, you know, God gives the state that they can bear the sword. The state can bear the sword. And he didn't mean for opening envelopes, obviously. We, we all know why the state can bear the sword in that. Now, there's a big discussion point, but it's quite clear. So there's a very big difference. God is not contradicting uh, about life being precious and equally there being a death penalty, a capital penalty for certain offences as well. He's the life giver. But he's also a covenant-keeping God. Here we see a covenant being made in the whole of this. God has said to a people, here is a covenant I am making with you to the people of Israel. Here we are in the blessings of a new covenant that God has made. Their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. And God will keep the covenant that he makes, those unconditional covenants. And he expects his people to mirror that. And when we make vows and promises to keep that, and particularly the most serious, I'll say, between the, the covenant that could be made between two people is in marriage. Between a husband and a wife. God has designed and defined marriage right from the beginning. Within marriage, and only within marriage, the husband and wife can have the physical, sexual intimacy that may result in the procreation of children, but they can also do it for pleasurable reasons for each other, not selfish reasons. Breaking the command is very serious. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbour, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And so God, a covenant-keeping God, that's his character, that's how we understand him, expects people to keep the covenants that they make. Now, like all sin, you know, we think of David, we think of the lady in John chapter 8. That sin can be forgiven in Christ, and because of Christ it can be. But I'm sure many of us can think of family, our found family, or maybe our even extended family, where this sin has resulted in devastation and long, long consequences. It ruins families indeed. And God says, when you make a covenant before me, when you come before me and make a promise, then you are expected to keep that promise. 
Don't let the pride and dissatisfaction that is in your heart deal with that and don't let it spill out to something else. Do not commit adultery. He's also a God, his character, who gives. And so he says, you know, you, I give certain things to certain people. Yes, you have responsibilities to steward it appropriately. I do. What God has given me, I'm a steward of. What God has given you, you are a steward of. Whatever you receive, you are a steward of. But we're not to steal from each other. And again, Ephesians 4.28, Paul says uh, to the Ephesian Christians, you know, that, that him that steal, there were thieves amongst them, when they were, before they were believers, of course, steal no more. Give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, you know, don't, uh, don't fiddle tax returns and things like that. Do not steal. Be accountable, because our God doesn't do that. He is a God who speaks the truth. Every word is truth because he is truth. We bank our eternity on God's word, don't we? We bank our lives on what he has given, the promises that he has given. That this is unchanging and his word is true to us. And the things that we read are true. Everything about our lives we rely on this don't we that God has given us his word and he's not going to change it he's not going to go back on it and so he says to those who are image bearers do not bear false witness do not lie you remember the Lord Jesus Christ of course no deceit or guile was found in his mouth every one of these commandments he fulfills completely perfectly he keeps the law perfectly in him there was no flattery there was no gossip. There was no lies. Again, Paul says to the Ephesians, this comes to us as well. Here's the application for us. Ephesians 4.25, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth. You know, sometimes speaking the truth can cost us, can't it? In front of people. In certain situations. Now, it's not we're meant to say everything all the time. And we could sort of think about that. But... God's desires commands us and has always commanded he is a God of truth thus we must speak the truth and finally in this understand the character of God it's interesting that the first commandment and the tenth commandment deal with the heart deal with the heart and of course this problem people have often said the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart it's interesting, of course, that many of these commandments have been put on the statute books of countries, haven't they? Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Well, that's not so much common now. But no one's ever put the Tenth Commandment in a law book in a country. Do not cover. How would you police that? Because of the heart, isn't it? But there's illegitimate affections that we can have, selfish, sinful desires that we can have. And God says, have a satisfaction within you. For what I have given to you. So we understand. Now what happens then. Is that the people we read in verse 8. Have heard this. They have saw the thunder and the flashes. And the sound, lightning the sound of trumpet. And they were afraid. And they trembled. And no surprise is it. The voice of God. The presence of God. They understood that the one who had delivered them was still someone well what is it 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you were reading this for the very first time, this is the first time you'd picked up your Bible tonight. I know it's not. And it seems contradictory at first, doesn't it? It says in verse 18, the people were afraid. And in verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. So in one sense it's don't be afraid, but the other sense it seems to say, well, there's a certain fear you should have. And of course there is, there's a difference, isn't there? They weren't to be afraid of him as one who's going to come and punish them, is a cruel tyrant against them. That would not be the right view of a God, our God. No. So don't be afraid in that sense. But, there is one whom you should fear. There is one whom we should fear. You know, the idea of the fear of the Lord should be amongst the New Testament believer as much as it was in those days. A healthy respect that the one who, yes, has called us, the one who has saved us, the one who has adopted us, uh, or transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, the one who has indeed adopted us into his family, the one we can say to Abba, Father, Equally, there should be in each of us a fear of the Lord. Let me just give you two scriptures to emphasise that. Acts 9.31 And it says there, So the church through all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord. Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.11 Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So Paul 2 Corinthians, the church, Acts chapter 9, there's other passages. There should be for the believer a healthy respect and a reverence for God. Yes, one who has called us into his family, but one who is different from us as well. As much as we could say about the fear of God, but a revere and respect. And so they realise then of how they're not going to keep this law. They should realise that, rather. And God puts in a, a system of sacrifice, how they might approach him. He knows the hearts of the people. Verse 22 to the end there. They will sin. They will wander away from him. The law had and has no power to save sinners. It just does that convicting work. The God, God uses that. It's like a tutor to lead us to Christ, we read. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It reveals people are sinners and they need a saviour. And so God, we see just at this end part here, provides a way of approach to him through a sacrifice. There has been a system of sacrifice. There is a system of sacrifice. He warned them not to manufacture idols. Not to build sophisticated altars like those used by the nations around him. There was a simplicity in the approach to God. A simple altar of earth or uncarved stone would be acceptable to him. There was not to be a work of man seen there in that sense. It's just the place where sacrifice would be offered and the worship of God would take place. The altar itself wasn't to be the, something to be worshipped or esteemed. It was the one whom they were sacrificing to. And it's interesting, is it? There's no steps up to this altar. God will come down to man. 
Man's not going to be able to take one step up. God will come down to man and be pleased in the system of sacrifice. In this system of sacrifice, the way of approach would be for that people. Well, there's a similarity for us, isn't there, but a great contrast. When we think of Jesus Christ, he, the Bible says, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's laws given to a people then. There are laws that we are under now. Yes, it is the law of Christ. But through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are empowered and enabled, being led by him to do what pleases God. So remember him. Remember our deliverer. Understand our deliverer and his holiness. Have a healthy fear and understand how we can approach application for us today from laws given those thousands of years ago. May God bless his word to us. May it be helpful. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you. Uh, We thank you for your word today. May you take away from our thoughts um, anything that is untrue, not in accordance with your word. May you give us all the ability to discern that, to be like the Bereans. But for those things that are true, help them not to depart from our minds the minute we sit up or leave this hall. But may they have an impact in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.